Comunidad, welcome to our cultura, a Radio Teco podcast by El Tecolote, San Francisco's bilingual newspaper since 1970. My name is Adriana Salinas. I'm a volunteer at El Tecolote, and I'm excited to be today's host. In this episode, I talk to Paul Flores, one of the most influential Latino performance artists in the country. Paul talked about how art can be used to drive social change. We talked about his experience as an artist in San Francisco and how the panorama has changed throughout the decades. Paul also explained how the community in the mission mobilized during the COVID-19 pandemic to help people in need and how they are using art to tell stories about how they were impacted. You can learn more about this at the Somos Esenciales event on Saturday, June 18 at Paseo Artístico. Paseo Artístico is a free bilingual community art stroll at the Calle 24 Cultural District. There will be food, performances, and other activities from 12 to 6 p.m. For more information about the different events at Paseo Artístico, go to paseoartistico.org. Paul, welcome to our Cultura podcast. Thank you. So honored to be here with you. I know. I'm really glad to have you on the show. And there are a lot of topics that I like to chat with you about. Um, but for today, I want to focus more on your work here in the arts in San Francisco and specifically with the community and the mission. Um, when I was reading about your work, um, I saw that, you know, you create art in many different forms, like poems, plays, um, and you tend to focus on social change. You're also very involved in the community here. You grew up between Tijuana and San Diego, and then fast forward a bit, you're playing professional baseball for the Chicago Cubs, and then you move to San Francisco. What are some of the things that drew you to San Francisco? Um, I, you know, it was... California. And uh, it was either New York or San Francisco for me. And I was coming out of uh, college at UC San Diego and my writing, one of my writing uh, mentors in San Diego, he was like, you know, you might enjoy San Francisco more if you're, you know, into performing and poetry. Um, at the time, I had just started doing spoken word. This was like 94, 95. And um, I chose San Francisco because, you know, they had the beat generation legacy and a lot of um, just a, a lot of history in literary um, culture. So I came to be a writer. That's why I came. What was the beat generation legacy for those that aren't familiar with it? Well, the beat the beat generation was the the whole, you know, um, <laughs> hipster jazz poetry of the fifties and sixties um, was established by these guys called um, the beat generation. They came from New York, um, Allen Ginsberg, uh, Jack Kerouac um, and William Burroughs and, and several others. And they connected with a guy named Lawrence Ferlinghetti who started city lights books. 
And so, you know, this was in like 55, um, 1955, uh, 54. So that, that meeting of those kind of rebellious, nonconformist poets who were giving up their middle-class lifestyles to come travel, like their whole idea of the beat was not only following the jazz music of the fifties, but being on the road, like moving around all the time, following, you know, this passion to, to experience things firsthand instead of just like, you know, looking at things on the news. So they traveled all over and they came across country from New York to San Francisco and they established a kind of wild literary scene. Um, a lot of improvisational poetry. That's the whole bongo, bongo with poems, um, turtlenecks and berets, <laughs> you know, drinking yeah. wine while you're doing poems. The whole kind of, um, like I said, like a hipster, original kind of hipster vibe that that came out of the 50s with bebop, um, bebop jazz. That was really big in the 50s in San Francisco. And they started this whole kind of legacy about uh, literature, um, legacy that included books like Howl, um, the, the, the book by Allen Ginsberg, which really kind of defined the whole beat generation as like going against conformity uh, in the fifties, re re rejecting, you know, um, America centralism, rejecting capitalism, rejecting homophobia, rejecting racism, um, and really celebrating a lot of the kind of radicalness that would come alive in 65 and 67 uh, and 69 in the city through the hippie movement. Did you move here when during the 90s yeah i moved here in 95 yeah so i'm kind of curious since your time here up until now how have you seen this scene evolve in terms of you know the kind of poetry people are putting out there the types of topics being covered um i've seen a lot of waves uh when i got here in the 90s everything was very experimental. So I got here right at the height of spoken word, um, right around 95. And, you know, in 1996, um, Poetry Slam and spoken word blew up nationally. Um, a guy named Saul Williams kind of uh, integrated hip hop into spoken word and Poetry Slam. And it took over urban centers all over from New York to um, Boston, to Chicago, to um you know, uh, San Francisco, uh, Seattle, a lot of scenes blew up around this kind of um, integration or, or, or combination of spoken word and hip hop, you know, like people rhyming, but um, and rapping, but talking about kind of like either very personal issues or social issues, you know, um, again, a lot of personal testimony to injustice. And I was seeing that um, everywhere in San Francisco. Uh, not only like, you know, were people putting their bodies on the line, like in the 90s, people would perform anywhere. It was, you know, very spontaneous. There was a lot of street performance going on. That was the that was kind of like, you know, the radical legacy of the of the 70s was street theater, street performance. And that was very that was that was really happening when I came in 95. There were people performing on the street all over, whether it was theater or, or music or poetry or performance art or screening movies on the, on the walls um, or integrating multiple, you know, interdisciplinary art that was happening in the public. It wasn't always like, you know, go inside and it definitely wasn't online. Right. So it's a very different, much more public uh, form of, of performance that was happening um, in the, in the nineties. 
What's funny is that because of COVID, we've had to go back to that legacy by performing out in these parklets, which has been wild because, um, you know, the, 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 the COVID forced us, you know, out of venues and into the streets. Like tonight I have a show at Evolved SF outside in the parklet. I'm going to be performing. Um, and that's been going on for the last two years. So we're kind of returning in a way, but not in the same way because the reasons we're going performing outside now um, are because of health issues, not because we want to, we want to resist um, and, uh, or, or create more access. The idea of performing out in the street was that, you know, there was no, there was nobody giving you permission. You just did it. You know what I mean? Um, if people were going to go out on the street, you know, and perform, you know, music and naked dance, no one was going to tell them they couldn't, they would do it until the police showed up. Um, now they're actively encouraging people to perform outside. Um, so it's, it's, it's very different, you know, than it was in the nineties, there was a, a different spirit. And then all of a sudden gentrification started, well, not all of a sudden, but gentrification became, um, essentially like a culture vulture and just ate up a lot of people um, by making it impossible to afford to live in San Francisco anymore. So a lot of the people that were doing this radical style of art didn't have mega bucks. So they all were pushed out and many of them ended up going to Oakland. Um, so, but now they're pushed out of Oakland too. So that's kind of what it was like in the nineties. And, and, you know, we've been battling gentrification since, since 95, since 96, 97, 98. I mean, uh, my friends all started getting evicted in 98 and 99. Um, and we would host eviction parties and we would, you know, have our friends over, uh, start playing music inside a place that someone was going to be evicted in. We'd have, you know, it was still punk back then. Um, people would start painting on the walls and, you know, just going nuts inside this place that someone was about to be evicted on. Sometimes we would ruin these places. <laughs> um, and uh, that was the rebelliousness, you know, that was our way of resisting being ev evicted, right? This was happening in the mission. I I've been part of the mission since 1995, 96. Um, so this was kind of like the culture of resistance, the culture of um, kind of radical uh, art in the neighborhood. Um, gentrification tried to silence a lot of that by bringing in a bunch of wealthy tech people who don't respond really well to, you know, um, leftist po politics um, in your face style, right? Um, and and this has been, you know, also part of the queer culture in, in San Francisco was also very in your face. Um, and often, you know, those two came together, the leftists and the queer um, cultural practices and, and, and aesthetics would mix and they would be raw. You know, um, and, and it would be sometimes for shock value, you know, uh, other times to protest, but the, but it was always unpredictable. And that was what was great about the 90s. Earlier, you were talking about how, you know, there was these movements in the 50s and the 60s and they through art, they were, you know, covering topics like homophobia, radicalism. And then it sounds like right now and since the 90s, there's a lot of, is there a lot of art and expressions that are 
covering this gentrification topic or do you feel like a lot of the folks have already been driven out of the city like what's currently the state i mean it, there's there's multiple um generations now i think i've lived through three waves of gentrification um uh, you know the first one being the dot coms when we just started doing email and internet commerce in the mid 90s um that was that was a big deal right a bunch of people came from the Midwest and just, you know, started building websites everywhere. Um, and then the crash came uh, in 2001 or 2002, um, the bubble burst, right? So all of a sudden we kind of went back to normal for a couple of years. And then um, uh, folks kind of left the, the city, the, the tech people went back home and they kind of took some vitamins or I don't know, retooled their, their apps and software and, Next thing you know, um, we had another another gener another like uh, movement of gentrification um, in that 2010 time, right? Uh, and then um, more more folks got got evicted, and so little by little, um, we we've had you know waves of gentrification, and it's like the mission as a community and a, and a cultural identity shrinks and shrinks. I used to say the mission, you know, used to stretch out to, um, you know, almost Church Street, right? Like that was still the mission. Um, and now, you know, it's it's shrinking. And I used to say it's, it's shrinking like a hand into a fist, right? Like, you know, more and more people are having to, to, to get together to protect themselves. And a lot of those people who um, were part of the protection were, were artists. And so artists... In, in, in San Francisco have done a great job to make, to bring awareness to gentrification um, by using a lot of different tools, uh, including the visual arts. I mean, the beautiful thing about, about the mission is that we tell our stories on the walls. So you walk down 24th Street, you'll see the history of the neighborhood and the history of the people in, in vivid colors right on the walls. So there are several murals that are dedicated to the like to like the history of gentrification since the nineties, um, and and even beyond, right? Like like uh, Lu Lucia's uh, Lucia Ipolito's uh, um, mission makeover mural that was painted in I think like twenty sixteen. You know that was looking at the youth who were gentrified out of the neighborhood, not just the artists, but the kids who all of a sudden were being faced with you know less places for them to hang out and play less welcoming, you know, faces in the neighborhood. And so then the police started to integrate and, and mess with teenagers. You know what I mean? And so people yeah. started to represent that in art. Then there was the Alex Nieto murder in 2014. Um, and so a lot of people started creating, you know, the uh, awareness around the fact that he was killed in his own neighborhood because people from outside, folks who moved here to join the internet, you know, extravaganza, the software app development world thought he looked like a thug because they didn't recognize him in his own neighborhood. They called the police on him. The police, you know, they had been identified him as wearing red and black as a gangster. So they, they thought he was a gangster and they killed him. That, that forced everybody in the neighborhood also to take note that these people who are now in our neighborhood are going to use the police against us. Right. So we had to like, we had to be louder. And so, you know, we bring in, we bring in the Brazilian baterias and the drums to our protests, you know, like we start dancing in the street to let people know we're still here. Um, Loco Bloco, you know, uh, Fogo na Ropa, these, 
these groups don't ask for permission to just perform in the street dance music. Um, we did a show a few years ago called History Matters in the Mission. And um, this was, well, no, this was not a few years ago. This was last year, 2021. And we put a band um, uh, on a flatbed truck and we stopped at different corners of the mission and, and did these monologues about, you know, cultural um, heroes from the 70s and, you know, reenacted their lives like Yolanda Lopez, Michael Rios and um, Juan Gonzalez and Joan Holden. And, you know, just trying to remind people why this neighborhood is so awesome is because of the artist activist tradition that we have. So I think we don't we don't lose that. We constantly remind people about it. It's everywhere you go. Um, but at the same time, it's not the story that's really told about San Francisco anymore. The story told about San Francisco is tech innovation, right? And now it's poop on the streets and recalling people. Um, you know, that's the that's kind of the story. Yeah, and I guess from hearing you, I notice a pattern of it's it's about putting stuff in the walls, being in street corners, saying monologues adding music to the protest is there have is there still some limitation into getting some of this work out to other types of channels like museums or something different avenues i do i do think there's a challenge um particularly in the latino community um we we constantly face uh you know alienation um the Latino community is is often kind of invisible, um, exploited. So, you know, um, there's a lot of noise we could be making. And, and we have to, the, the whole way of, of raising the profile of Latino art is by uniting and solidarity, um, is by, you know, not just artists, but artists working with, you know, uh, other organizations and um, connecting to, to movements. Um, that, that is how we raise the profile of our arts, which is usually, you know, like, like I said, mostly it's, it's about social justice in, in, in the mission. Um, but there are a lot of people that are doing their own thing that are, that are self-determining, you know, the way they're going to publish. Um, you know, we've got, uh, we've got, you know, Josiah Luis Alderete, the poet, you know, he just opened up a bookstore in the, in, uh, called medicine for nightmares, you know, and, and he, um, he has, they have their own gallery now. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a, a native San Franciscan who now has, um, a bookstore in the old alley cat books and he's got a gallery and, and, um, so, you know, that's the way we're trying to respond through our entrepreneurism, right. Trying to become entrepreneurs, um, trying to get, get the stuff out by owning things the best that we can. The, the museums and the institutions, um, Often there's two ways in which the institutions react to the kind of marginalized artist or outsider art. And one is either by, you know, constantly calling them out about the, their, their own racism or their own inequities. We can do that too, right? That's like bringing the protest to them. Um, uh, for instance, like SF MoMA, right? Like MoMA was called out for being super racist or ACT, the theater they were also called out, you know, by people working there for how how racist they are, who they choose to um, hire and fire, and, and how they pay them. So internally, people raised those those inequities, and then artists came and, and demanded that they change those 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 uh, operations. 
Um, so that's one way of getting the institutions to listen. The other way is by, you know, leveraging collaborations um, and resources, um, you know, like, but without being exploited. That's the thing. You know, the institutions have the resources. We have, um, you know, the culture and the, and the traditions. So, again, using SF MoMA as an, as an, ex- as, as an example, as a museum, you know, MoMA is now collaborating with Acción Latina. Um, to create more community-based um, programs uh, that that you know reflect the the the, the whole culture of San Francisco, um, so they're they're seeding you know us producing shows together. Um, that Diego Rivera mural that they brought in, the Pan American mural they brought in, has been a big collaborative collaboration with us for the last two years. You know that we've had a we've had a mural making. Um, a commission over there. Uh, we're about to do a big event. Acción Latina is about to do a big event on July 17th. We're going to do, you know, basically bring the mission to SOMA. Um, they're going to invest in, um, uh, uh, MoMA's going to help produce a collaborative um, exhibit called History Matters in the Mission 1980s, where we're going to focus on what was popping in the Mission District in the, in the 1980s, again, to kind of like ground people in the traditions so we're, we're, we're moving on getting institutions to support um, local grassroots culture. Um, and, and I think the more successful it is, other institutions will also be like, how can we start, you know, sharing our resources with the Latino community? So, so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to raise the profile on, on the need for institutional support, but also to um, reinforce self-determination in, in, our, in our cultural practices and in our cultural institutions. You're talking a lot about the role of the community and having a support system here and how important that is. And you give the example of this library that just got launched here in the mission and other efforts that happen outside. Um, I want to talk now about Somos Esenciales, um, which by the time this episode airs, it will be an event Saturday, June 18th. And you, along with Acción Latina and Latino Task Force, are putting together this free bilingual community art stroll at the... Yes. Is it, is it at the Calle 24 Latino Cultural District? You know, we've, we're getting more partners with Paseo. But yeah, Paseo is, was, is meant to be a, um, an art walk uh, up 24th Street in the, in, the Calle, in the Calle 24 Latino Cultural District. You know, we have about 10 cultural venues uh, in, uh, in the corridor and they all host uh, an event um, for free for the community. You know, it can be any type of art event. You know, it could be a workshop. It could be a concert. It could be poetry reading. It could be a, an art exhibit. It could be, you know, a printmaking session where, you know, bring your T-shirt and Calixto Robles will will print, you know, on your T-shirt some really cool Jaguar designs. You know, um, it could be it could be. Um, a presentation on, uh, you know, indigenous uh, American um, legacy in San Francisco. Uh, it could be all kinds of uh, things like that, but we've been doing that since 2016. And uh, for Somos Esenciales, we're going to be not only in the corridor, not only in Calle 24, but we're also going to engage the Mission Food Hub. We're going to be presenting um, a couple shows there too uh, from 4 to 6 p.m. That's going to be really cool. 
because the Food Hub is is a, is a new institution. Well, we hope it's a, it's a new cultural space um, that that came out of the pandemic, and we're going to be hosting there, um, having some performances there. Exactly, and just some quick background. When I was reading about this event, I came across with several videos of testimonies of how the community came together to provide resources like food during these difficult times of the pandemic. And I'm guessing that's the role that Mission Food Hub took, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, the Mission Food Hub was started by by Roberto Hernandez and other members of the Latino Task Force as a, a, a means of basically feeding our our community, our you know Latino and and Latinx and Spanish speaking community who lost their jobs during um, during the pandemic and did you know didn't have any money for food. Um, the majority of people who volunteer at the Food Hub are immigrants, so they didn't have access to um, you know uh, unemployment or um, state subsidized funds. Um, so how are we going to help them? Right? They couldn't. You know, work, jobs were shut down, rent, you know, was had to be paid and they couldn't afford food. So um, uh, the, the the folks at Latino Task Force built up, you know, their their network to to generate food donations from all over, including, you, you know, um, local local groceries and local bodegas and, and um, also national and federal, uh, you know, agricultural uh donations came through and and it was just about you know collecting and so they started out the lowrider council actually so that's another cultural practice in the in the neighborhood is low riding and and working on your your classic cars the low the san francisco lowrider council is who actually started distributing the food in um april of 2020 um when it was only you know two or three hundred people receiving boxes and then you know it got all the way up to nine thousand people receiving boxes of food a week. Um, so it expanded and supported so many people and kept so many people uh, with food and alive. But then what happened was is that the Food Hub became so active that then we started having, you know, cultural celebrations there. We started celebrating Carnaval there. We started celebrating Cesar Chavez Day there. We started having shows and artists and musicians playing there. And, you know, you go into the Food Hub and Spanish is spoken majority. Um so it became a cultural space, right? So not only was it a place for for feeding people in need, it was also, you know, providing them cultural sustenance, and you know, um, then it also incorporated um, social services, so people could go get, learn how to get on unemployment, learn learn how to get um, uh, jobs, find out how to get health services. All of that started happening at the food hub uh, on Alabama Street. And, and it turned into a large cultural community center when it was initially inti- uh, intended to feed people, but it attracted so many people that it blew up. Starting to put together this event, Somos Esenciales, uh, you know, I know we, we all went through difficult times, but when talking to people for this event or seeing what artists were doing, was there something that surprised you? I think art. Um, I think artists, like everybody else, uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, were scared. Um, artists, like many uh, workers, lost contracts. I know I did. I lost thousands of dollars. 
A lot of shows canceled, tours canceled. We lost a lot. So we were frightened at first and didn't know how to react um, to, to, to quarantine and uh, shelter in place. What were we supposed to do? Like, you know, that was a, a big deal. But then eventually, you know, we started Zooming, everybody Zoom. <laughs> so <laughs> we started making art online. And, and um, you know, so I got this grant from the National Association of Latino Arts and Culture, NALAC, um, to do a, a, a what's called um, Catalyst for Change grant. And I got that right before the pandemic in February 2020. Um and the idea was to combine art making with a racial justice um, theme, right? So what I saw in um, in uh, what was happening in our neighborhood during the pandemic was that a lot of Latinos were getting sick and no resources were being um, uh, directed their ways from the city. So while our people were in the hospitals and dying at a, at a much at a very disproportionate rate, the city was very behind in servicing our, our people. And I felt like that was um, a huge disparity, uh, health disparity. And so I wanted to document that. I wanted to show um, that that's what happened. So I gathered other artists who, who also were interested in that theme, you know, in, in showing how the Latino community suffered um, in, during the pandemic and then how we turned it around through our own, you know, community organizing um, to get our own uh to start our own people helping each other, such as the Food Hub, such as the Latino Task Force and, and the testing that we started all on our own, you know, and then we made partnerships with UCSF. Then the city came in and then we, you know, um, had to advocate uh, for Supervisor Ronan to get money to, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants who had lost their jobs so that they could, and who had COVID, so that they could survive and have a little bit of money. Um, so all of this, you know, artists were starting to, to advocate for this very loudly online and in the streets, even with masks and whatnot. So, you know, I saw a few artists that were doing that. I, I saw um, Andreina Maldonado, you know, I saw her band playing uh, outside a lot. And I said, you know, Andreina, let's, I want to make a, a show with you uh, about, you know, supporting um, our people who suffered during the pandemic um, with with theater, music, and dance. And she was like, yeah, I, I think that's right up my alley. You know, she organizes the domestic workers. Um, she helps them use a song and dance to advocate for policy change. And they just recently won that whole sick leave, you know, for domestic workers in San Francisco. Uh, she was part of that advocacy. I got with Francisco Herrera, uh, another guy who who leads the day labor program. And I, you know, asked with him, I said, hey, let's write some music about what's going on in the pandemic. And let's play it live and other artists like that you know who who were who are organizing for our community um and i just wanted to to kind of focus on the effort of self-determination in our community to to help ourselves when the city won't and a lot of that was happening at the food hub francisco was at the food hub um andreina was working with domestic workers who were at the food hub um there were unemployed musicians and dancers volunteering at the food hub um, <laughs> a lot of it was already happening. So I just wanted to turn some of that experience into theater um, and, you know, document some of those stories. And then we turned it into a research project, um, you know, about the decline in, in mental health of our community, because that was a that was an that was an effect of the pandemic, stress, anxiety, depression, divorce, um, isolation. Those were heavy things. You know what I mean? I know they were 
you know, what were ways we could also use our cultural resources to support folks, you know, because our community doesn't always go to the hospital or the psychiatrist. What, what do we have within our community? What could we sh- shed light on as resources, you know, cultural practices that can support our mental health? Right. And so that was also part of what Somos Esenciales was, is that we need to support our workers and they have suffered. They've suffered mental health declines. How do we help them? Exactly. Exactly. So for people that go to this event, they'll be able to see some live performances, uh, visual arts, and they'll also, will they also find information about this? So if they're looking for, you know, support, um, kind of, I guess, related yes. to what you're touching yes. on, Le- mental health, things like Luckily, that. Luckily, we're going to have um, several representatives from these larger public institutions come talk about what types of supports that they can provide. So on the 18th, that you're going to see the theater piece, which is basically monologues with music and dance that represent some of the stories of the food workers at the Food Hub. Then you're going to see a documentary about... Um, some of their lives too, uh, including the people who put the food hub together, like those those clips that you saw online. Those that those are part of a twenty five minute documentary. Then you're going to hear some of the research that those um, food hub volunteers did from Somos Esenciales about mental health. And then you're going to hear Dr. Lisa Fortuna, who's the head of psychiatry at General Hospital, and you're going to hear um, Joshua Arce, who is the director of workforce development for uh, Mayor London Breed. They're going to talk about what resources are available to support people's economic and financial needs and health needs. Yeah. And where can people find more information about this event? You can go to paseoartistico.org or you can go to accionlatina.org. But paseoartistico.org has all the information. Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out Paseo Artístico this Saturday, June 18, where the Somos Esenciales event will take place. You can find more information at paseoartístico.org. As the podcast of the community newspaper El Tecolote, we think hearing from you is important. So please leave us a comment, rating, and share our podcast to other members of the community. Thank you.